Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today. He posted wins over Agassi, Safin, Hewitt, Rafa, and Federer. He quarterfinaled the Australian Open and the U.S. Open twice, and he was part of the last American team to win the Davis Cup. He is a broadcaster on the Tennis Channel, and he is the tournament director for the new and improved Miami Open. James Blake tells us about the triumphs and challenges of putting on a brand new world-class tournament, why he's reserving judgment on the Gimbelstab situation, and how he went from thinking that playing four at Harvard was a stretch to actually becoming the number four player in the world, and how he did it all with severe scoliosis. We're in Miami at the Miami Open. We're talking tennis with the tournament director. We're in the main interview room. Yeah. In the bottom of the Hard Rock Stadium. Yeah. Um, things are just getting going. Um, gentlemen, you hear is James Blake, former world number four. First of all, thank you for having us. Pleasure. Thanks. Um, you may not remember or could not remember this, but... Um, I once shot with you at Saddlebrook Resort, okay. leading into the U.S. over the USA Network. Yeah, I mean, I feel like at that time, at that moment, it was probably like 2003 or two. It was like you were starting to become like the must-see player at the U.S. Open. Yeah, that was fun. I loved it. I loved the Open just for all my fans and friends being so close. Yeah, it was a good time. Yeah, it was a strange shoot. You like went and like bought a leather jacket, and <laughs> it was bizarre. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't do a ton of clothing shopping anymore. Now I'm, I'm married with kids. That's uh, <laughs> I, I wear whatever people give me. So, in an effort to keep things moving and cover a wide variety of topics and subjects, we do a five-set format. You played some classic five-setters, and we will get to that later. But let's start with what's happening now, the Miami Open. This is the the off-the-court report. Um, You are the tournament director of the Miami Open. Um, I had to tell you, two days ago we were here, I felt skeptical. Um, And then yesterday, you know, day one, I was just astonished at how great this is. Well, thanks. Yeah, I I think there was a lot of players that were skeptical last year uh, when they heard we're putting a tennis stadium in a football stadium and we're building all the other courts on a parking lot. Um, and I've heard nothing but positive reports from the players that have gotten here um, practicing. They love the courts. They love the, um, the grove, the grill, all the, the stuff on the outside. It's like an oasis of tennis, <laughs> right? It's pretty yeah. sick. I think it's going to be incredible for the diehard tennis fans. You've got unbelievable tennis. You've got the best players in the world playing. Um, but for the casual tennis fan, you can go out on, like you said, it's an oasis. You can have a picnic basket. You can sit at a bar. You can uh, listen to live music. There's so many other experiences you do it's it's entertainment and tennis and um to be honest it felt to me like a grand slam yeah that's great to hear i mean it's not necessarily our intention we're not trying to compete with grand slams or any wells or any other masters 1000s we're just trying to make the sport better and make an experience in miami and make it very uh typically miami we can draw on the, the culture here the food the music the art we got beautiful murals out on the grandstand and um i think hopefully people appreciate uh, everything we're doing around the sport of tennis well i thought it was clever the way you like bit the murals from Wynwood, and then mm-hmm. you sort of took some of those slicker Miami things like Casa Tua, yeah. and 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 they're all they all have a presence here 
in an interesting way. Yeah, and that, that was the, the thought, because IMG made such a commitment to wanting to keep this event in Miami. And then partnering with Stephen Ross to make it a possibility was just, uh, was truly amazing. Stephen Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, went buck wild and made this place <laughs> incredible, huh? Yeah, and he, I mean, he's one of the few developers that has these, this kind of vision. And I mean, then he, he has the detail-oriented uh, nature to make this possible as well. He's the one that, that uh, helped us and worked with us on the landscaping, making sure the flowers were the way he wanted it. The tile in the, um, in the grove was the way he wanted it. So it's, um, it's a real credit to him for, for how much he's helped and how much he, uh, he made IMG's commitment uh, you know, possible. Um, and even yesterday, I was saying to Scotty, I said, man, you know what? The flavor in Miami is incredible. Everyone on the courts is speaking different languages. You hear Portuguese, you hear Spanish, mm -hmm. you hear people speaking Italian. Miami is an international city. Mm -hmm. And I mean, yesterday, I didn't think there'd be one person here. The place had like great action. Yeah, and that's that was sort of like, a, if you want to, for like a restaurant is like a soft opening because it's the qualifying yeah. and it's not a, as big. You don't have the big names playing. And um, we still had a good crowd out there and I was walking around quite a bit and heard a lot of fans saying they love it here. And um, that's that to me is thrilling and exciting to, to start out the event um, and have people getting a good taste in their mouth. Their first impression is a positive one. Uh, that's a good feeling. And now I'm sure being a first, uh, first year at a new venue, there'll be a couple of minor hiccups, but I got to make sure they're just minor hiccups and nothing major. What's um, been one of your most stressful things for you as tournament director? I mean, you must be must be like going to grad school, I would imagine. <laughs> it's been hectic, but it's been fun, and, and I'm definitely relieved that the players are, are happy with how it's turned out. Um, there have been little issues with... Uh, uh, the transportation, just because it's such a different venue, it's a little further for some of the... the um, it's a new thing. Yeah, so so the transportation drivers of getting it down, we got to figure out exactly how many cars we need. Do we need some already downtown, ready to pick up the players and the shuttles and all that kind of stuff has just been uh, a work in progress. And then otherwise, um, you know, just making sure the players are happy. You know, we got to figure out uh, how many private physio rooms they need, all the gym space. And we have the space here, so it's just a matter of, uh, of honing it in and getting it the right, getting the right uh, recipe. Um, Roger Federer, uh, 6 p.m., public practice. Mm -hmm. How does that happen, coming off of a three-set Master Series 1000 final? Yeah, I saw him, and I, I couldn't believe he was coming here and wanted to practice, but he, I think, the, even the, the most basic of weathermen could tell that it was supposed to rain all day today and it could be a washout, so he wanted to get in a little bit of hitting on the on the new courts. Um, so he figured yesterday might be his only day before they start playing matches on the stadium uh, tomorrow. So he got out there and he hit. And, um, you know, I had talked to him a little before and he said, yeah, I said, it's incredible what he's doing, playing, you know, at this age for how long he's been playing his longevity. And he said, yeah, now getting out right after a three-setter and practicing a little more. I said, that's, uh, he's incredible. I, I've always said Father Time is undefeated and Roger's the only one that's even given him a run for his money, it seems like. He's still playing this well at this age. It's, uh, it's amazing. Um, in Vesco series, you have a, a presence at the tournament. So I think we saw you at the Sherwood Country Club. Yeah, I played I, there. I'm pretty sure you pistol whipped Roddick. I got Roddick. I think Marty got me there though in the finals. But it was uh, yeah, I love the Invesco series. It's a lot of fun and it's um, it's great to to see the same guys that you got along with on tour. And we have a ton of fun in the locker rooms. And it's a little less pressure obviously than it was when we were on the the ATP tour. But um, we still get out there and we're still competitive. We don't have the same 
preparation exactly. We're not out there training six days a week and grinding for hours and hours, but um, we still love the sport. We love putting on a show and we do our best out there and it's maybe not quite the same as it used to be, but we have a, we have a lot of fun and we, uh, we get competitive and it's just, a, it's just a ton of fun to, to know that we've got these lifelong friendships that are still, um, we're still able to provide entertainment and, uh, and get, to be a lot, get to be friends with these guys. It's always fun and you guys, um, like the hit and giggle in the morning with the VIP fans, I think is a thrill for a lot of those people to be able to hit a few balls with you guys and, and, and then you do a Q&A. It's pretty good. Yeah, and we have a great time. And we, do, we get to kind of do similar uh, situations in every event. Um, it's just a matter of uh, the different people. And yeah, you get to see new people, see, see them play. And, and um, it's a ton of fun because they, you know, they're out there playing every week. And, uh, and then they get to, instead of playing with their friends, they're playing with McEnroe and uh, Roddick and Fish and Haas. And um, we, hope, we hope to provide them with, a, with plenty of stories and plenty of memories of, uh, of good tennis. Now let me ask you: um, Are you are you finished broadcasting because of this gig? No. No, I'm still broadcasting. So I did uh, some of Tennis Channel earlier this year, and I'll be uh, I've got a little bit of a break thanks to being so busy right now. But I'll be uh, I'll be back for the French Open and uh, and doing quite a few more in the in the summer and fall. Oh really? Yeah. So you're you're straight up with them uh, yeah. all the way through. Yeah, still working with Tennis Channel, and um, yeah, looking forward to the French Open's always a blast. That's um, you know I didn't love it as a player because <laughs> it wasn't my uh, wasn't my best surface, but uh, as a fan, it's uh, it's a pretty special uh, tournament. Let's move into our second set. Right. This is our on the court report. You know, I mean, now that you're a tournament director, a former world class player and broadcaster, I feel like you have your eye on the current tennis as close as anyone. What are your impressions moving through Miami into the clay? Has anything or anyone caught your eye in an interesting way? Well, Dominic Team is uh, clearly the person a lot of people will be talking about uh, coming out of uh, Indian Wells on the men's side just because he played so well, played a great final against Roger Federer. And I'm excited to see because he actually had a little bit of time off earlier this year um, due to illness and injury. Um, I think it may help him in the in the long run because he's uh, he used to play so many matches and now having a little bit of rest may end up helping him uh, endure. Wait, hold on. Let me just stop you for a second. So, so I, I didn't understand. So, team was hurt or yeah. he had illness. I think he was uh, one of the events he pulled out because he was under the weather. So, um, so you think that maybe he kind of just, just taking a few matches out uh, of his schedule, um, and it's an unfortunate circumstance that that's why he was taking some uh, some matches off. But uh, in the long run, throughout the whole year, I think that may help just save his body, and he'll be able to be as good as he is at the beginning of the year, towards the end of the year. And I think the clay court season for him is going to be really interesting because he's so good on clay and. You know, Rafa's still the favorite on any clay court tournament he goes into, but Dominic is really um, making a name for him being that second favorite in a lot of these clay court events. And we actually saw Rafa lose to team in Italy, uh, in Rome, two years ago. Yeah, so he's one of the guys, one of the few guys that may have the firepower and the ability to beat Rafa on a clay court. We know that beating Rafa in three out of five on clay is one of the one of if not the most difficult things in our in our sport to do, um, but teams one of the few that could lay claim to having that ability. And then on the women's side, Bianca Andreescu is a, an amazing uh, sort of underdog story and kind of coming out of nowhere, and uh, that's always fun to see. And then the thing that's exciting for me is to see how someone that 
just vaults themselves into the spotlight and into the fame and uh, and into the upper echelon of the rankings, how they start handling it once it once it becomes a reality. And you know, she had nothing to lose, sort of going into Indian Wells, and now she's going to have a target on her back a little bit. And it'll be interesting to see how she handles it at such a young age. You hope she can continue playing as freely as she was playing in Indian Wells and as aggressive and and just not having that kind of uh, weighing her down. So we'll see how she does, and I hope she does. It's interesting, um, Dominic team. you could make the observation that he kind of has overworked himself mm-hmm. the last couple of years. Meanwhile, Bianca uh, Andreescu, she is as match tough as anyone on tour. She played, she had played 30 matches before she got to the quarterfinals, I believe. I mean, yeah. she got very match tough. Um, and and it, to me, it showed. Her yeah. match toughness was incredible. Yeah, and she she really never blinked. She had a, a you know a ton of opportunities to just kind of fold and and say oh, I, I've had a great event and you know that's as far as I go. But like you said, she was match tough. She's played a lot of matches and won a lot of matches. And I've always said that you can lose you can learn a lot from losing, but you can also learn from winning and on any level, whether it's futures, challengers, college, whatever. And she was winning some matches at challengers and now winning tons on the the on the WTA tour. Um, but w- she's learned how to win matches, and she knows she's she's very good at that, at finding the ways to win. And she had to do that in the finals, and she had to do that throughout the event. Well, I also too like I've I've always, you know, not to pick on any certain players, but I feel like some of the players have like such long breaks in their schedule that it's tough to just show up and beat someone who's who's that match tough. It is, and there are guys, you know, guys and and uh, women that are finding a way to elongate their career, and that is taking some breaks. Um, but there, it, it takes a special kind of person. I think Roger is one that's so unique in being able to take time off and come back and immediately be confident. Serena Williams as well, but I feel like Serena needs to play her way into events sometimes. And so if you get her after a long break, sometimes the best time to get her is first or second round because she may not have that same match toughness. And most people wouldn't when they have that long of a break. But once she gets a match or two matches under her belt, it seems like she her level goes up exponentially. And then it's just uh, such a danger to play her late in, late in any tournament. And for Roger, it seems like he's able to um, get back so quickly, and it's almost like it, it never left his match toughness. So, um, But then there are other guys, same with Rafa. Rafa is one of the greatest players of all time, and he it seems like if he takes a break and he comes back, he could be vulnerable in that first or second round. But the the greats, they're, they're greats for a reason. It seems like they do find a way to get through that, and then they play their way into the event, and they're unstoppable. Play their way into the event. Yeah. Incredible, I think. Yeah. Um, what's your opinion of, generally speaking, the coaching carousel that went pretty aggressively? I mean, yeah. a lot of moves, a lot of things happened. Yeah, some of them are surprising. You know, you, you get to number one in the world, like Osaka, and then you switch coaches. And um, Sloan Stevens as well got uh, up to top five in the world, had a great year, and, and uh, split with her coach, Kamal Murray. And um, so it's just interesting, and I think sometimes people are searching, and if they have any sort of a bad result, they try to figure out what can be changed, and a lot of times that's the, the coach, that's the casualty there. And um, they've been moving around, and it, you know sometimes it's just finding that right voice and how they mesh uh, with you, because there's a lot of coaches out there that know the X's and O's of the game and can get you a scouting report and can, um, can help you with technique, but um, to be able to relate it 
to each player is what I think makes the unique relationship better. It's you know they become some similar to a marriage or you know that kind of a partnership that um, you have to have both of them. Um, feeling good about the partnership to make it work. Right. If you hate having breakfast with somebody, <laughs> it, it might, it might not be that good. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, your opinion of, I know that at one time you were um, big up on the ATP board. Mm -hmm. um, firing of Chris Kermode. Um, where are you at with that? Yeah, I haven't heard all the details. Uh, it'll be interesting for me to hear um, from some of the players what their thoughts are on it. I, I haven't, uh, obviously, I, it seems like that caught a lot of people by surprise. It definitely caught me by surprise because to me, it seemed like he had been doing an excellent job. Uh, I'm not in those council meetings anymore. I'm not in the board meetings. I'm not in, um, I'm not even on tour. So I, I don't know what went into it um, behind the scenes, but. Um, you you got to have any inside information. No, unfortunately, that you can share I don't. With unfortunately, us. I don't. Our show's the insider show. No? <laughs> the, the insider show. I got no inside information right, on right, Chris Kermode, right. unfortunately. But, but it's like some kind of high tension around about that. It seems that way, and I'm interested to find out the inside. So when you guys get the inside info, I want to hear it too, because <laughs> I don't know uh, that insider information uh, yet. Um, I'm curious to know um, where you stand on Justin. Justin is, uh, Justin Gimelstab is a good friend of mine, and um, I'm still, I haven't made any public comment about him, about his incident um, on Halloween uh, when he allegedly attacked another man, um, just because I don't know what's going to happen legally. So uh, he's due to be in court, I think, relatively soon. Um, I check in on him periodically just to see how he's doing, and he seems to be okay with the fact that he's got a reduced role uh, with Tennis Channel and he's not, um, he hasn't been quite as busy, but he's been with his son, Brandon, and um, I think that's given him plenty of joy and he's slowed down his life a little bit, which is, is great. Uh, I think anyone that knows Justin knows he goes a mile a minute, so um, it's probably good for him. But, uh, you know, when something happens legally, um, when we get to the bottom of all the evidence, um, then I'll probably make a public comment, but for right now, um, Justin, someone I, I've I've always been friends with since I knew him in juniors, and um, I support him. But if he did what is alleged to have, he is alleged to have done, then um, you know there's punishments out there for that. Um, but if it's not true, and if it's um, the way he says, um, you know, there's obviously two sides, and a lot of times they say there's three sides: there's one side, the other side, and then the truth. So we'll figure out what happened in a court of law, and that's where it seems like he's going. He's not a uh, He's not backing down from his claims, and it seems like um, the other person, the other party, is not backing down. So um, we need to find out what happens. I, I, I just don't want to be that person that makes such a public comment statement on one side or the other, and then realize when when you see the the evidence that you um, you know were in the wrong. And so I want to see the evidence. Moving into our third set, uh, this is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Okay. Um, you know, I think that because you conducted yourself with such, uh, just in such a dignified way throughout your career that I don't, I don't really think that people realize how amazing it is that you were able to have the career you had. I mean, your scoliosis <laughs> is no joke. 
Yeah, and I mean, I was wearing a back brace for 18 hours a day when I was about 12 to 17 years old, and um, it was it was for me it was a release just to get out of the back brace and be able to play some tennis. So that's where I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed myself so much just from being able to to feel free without having that back brace on. But I um, yeah, I, I always said when I got on tour that I, I was lucky to be playing because my body wasn't really built for pro sports. I. I um, um, I, I was very fortunate to get 14 years out of out of my body to play on tour, and um, I realized it was um, it was pretty lucky. And I could have been, I, I could have barely been a college athlete. I could have, uh, if I had surgery, like they said, that I was very near doing for scoliosis, I never would have played tennis again. So that's that's the story, though, is that you basically did not do surgery. Yeah, well, it was uh, that's why I wore the brace because they said that if you have to brace it to give yourself a chance to not have the surgery. If I didn't wear the brace, I almost definitely would have had to have the surgery and uh, the surgery at that time would have meant putting two titanium rods in my back and they said, you know, my mo my range of motion, my mobility would have been um, so limited that there's no chance I would have been able to play tennis. So that to me, I didn't want that as an option. And as a 13-year-old, you don't want to wear a back brace to high school that forces you to buy your jeans four sizes too big to get over the brace. Um, you don't want that because you want to fit in. And um, so that was difficult for me, but I wanted to, uh, after thinking about it and thinking how much things could have been worse, um, I still was, was um, like I said, I was happy to do it because I was happy when I got the brace off and be able to play tennis then. And, and, so straight, I, and it straightened you out. It didn't straighten me out. It, it made it so it didn't get any worse. So I still have scoliosis pretty bad, but I, um, if it had gotten any worse, which a lot of times it does when you're growing, um, then I would have had to have surgery. Um, and then, and how did you get so good? <laughs> a lot of work. That's what I tell uh, any kids is that it looks easy because you put in a lot of hard work to make it look easy. Where did you make your big jump? Um, probably when I was around 16 years old, because I wasn't a, an unbelievable junior. I was um, you know, barely making nationals in the 14 and unders, and then the 16 and unders, I started getting better. But around 16, 17 is when I finally grew. I grew about nine inches in one year, um, and that took me from being a, a tiny kid that was trying to play aggressive without any power and without any, um, any real ability to have weapons to my weapons actually became weapons. Uh, my forehand got a lot bigger, my serve got a lot bigger. I was able to actually move forward into the, and attack the net um, when I went from 5'3 to 6 foot in one year. Um, and that made a huge difference. That was when I was about 16, 17 years old and I went from being someone that was not even thought of on the national scene to winning national indoors and winning national clay courts and um, sort of popping up onto the scene. You had some, you had some significant wins in juniors. Um, mm -hmm. But did you play like Junior Wimbledon? No. None of that. Never played any of them. The only one I uh, played was Junior US Open my last year, right before I went off to college, and didn't even realize that was an option because I was just playing national clay courts. I didn't realize all those international tournaments were even out there. I was such a sort of rookie and naive to, to knowing about the whole ITF scene that I didn't know anything about it and um, went and played uh, the Junior US Open, and they, the USDA told me I could play one event in Canada before it. Um, I don't even remember the name of it, but there's an ITF event right before um, the Junior US Open in Canada. I went up and played that and um, then played the Junior US Open and that was it for my junior career. Then I went off to college and, uh, and became a college player. So, um, and, and, and you just kind of got bigger and, and the, you just sort of got that ferocious forehand. I mean, yeah. That's really the, the weapon that yeah. brings you to, to the elite. 
Yeah, and it happened so quickly because I really felt like uh, when I was applying to colleges and thinking about where I was going to go, I wanted. To, I ended up going to Harvard where my brother was, and I used to go watch them play, and I thought their ability was so much greater than mine. I thought I, if I could make the team, it'd be great. I, I thought when I got there, maybe I'd be playing number four on the team because it seemed like there was such a big gap between what the juniors were doing and what college players were doing. And as my junior career started getting better and better, I didn't really even fathom that I was close to that college level or even the pro level seemed to me so far away. And then uh, because I made the finals of Kalamazoo, the, the National 18's hard courts, uh, they gave me a wild card into the qualifying of the U.S. Open. And I had never played any pros really at that point. I had practiced with Matt's Vlander when he was sort of retiring, um, but I hadn't gotten the opportunity to play in any sort of a pro event. And I thought it was so far removed from where I was. And playing there, I won a set off a guy that was about 140 in the world named Lawrence Thielman. And to me, that was like a success. I, I didn't realize that I was anywhere close to that level and knowing that I actually had a chance there. I lost one break in the third set, had a, had a good chance against a player that was uh, had a solid uh, pro career. So I then started realizing that, oh, wow, this is something that maybe I could do. And I was happy I still went to college and got two years of experience there because I still don't think I was ready to compete on that level day in and day out. Um, I needed to get stronger. I needed to get physically a little bit bigger. And mentally, it was better for me um, to go through two years of college where I won a lot as opposed to going on tour. If I had tried to play on tour when I was 17, 18 years old, I would have been losing a lot and a lot of early rounds and futures and challengers. That was my question to you. Um, did, did you improve at Harvard? Did you improve in college? Do you believe in college tennis? I definitely improved. I definitely believed. I still think tennis is such an individual sport. Everyone can do uh, what makes sense for them. I, may, I understand college would not have made sense for Andy Roddick, but for me, it made sense. I needed to grow a little more. I needed to uh, mature a little more. I needed to physically get stronger. And college was a perfect place for me to do that while still winning a lot of matches. And being a part of a team for me was a ton of fun. Uh, some people don't enjoy that aspect, but I loved the, the team atmosphere. I was on a team with my brother for the first year, and that was a lot of fun. And then second year, I felt like I was a little bit more of a leader. Uh, I had been a part of the team for, for one year and felt like I was the number one player on the team. So I felt a little bit like the pressure was on me, and I, I enjoyed that, that part of it. So for me, it was better. Once I got through my second year, I felt like I couldn't push myself the way I had been pushing myself in practice um, to that next level. So it was time for me to turn pro and, and get pushed every day. So were you deep into your sophomore year? You already had it in your mind that you were going to turn pro. Was no, it like things I, just happening kind of? So I went back to my sophomore year with a commitment that I had in my mind that I was going to put everything I could into my tennis that year. Um, and if I felt like at the end of my sophomore year I was ready, then I was going to go. But if I didn't, then I was going to commit to I'm going to go for four years. I wasn't going to go for three. I was going to go for two or four. Um, and so I wanted to see how well I did. And it became clear to me, I'd say probably what made the decision for me was on my Christmas break, I went and played a Futures event in near Orlando, and I won the event. And at that point, I figured, okay, I'm beating players that are still trying to do this for a living, and I can win on the future level. Obviously, it's still not the challenger level, it's not the tour level, but I'm studying for my finals while I'm doing this. And so if I can do this, then maybe there is a chance for me to make a living and for me to go to this next, to take this next step. And then when I went back, so I went back for my second semester, um, thinking there was a pretty good idea that I was, I was ready to turn pro. And so that second semester was um, very focused and committed to the tennis and improving to that next level. And I, I gotta ask you, like you mm -hmm. went to Harvard, I mean, how mm -hmm. is it hard? 
Is it, it is, is that, or is it, it overhyped? It, no, it's um, it depends. It, it's it's very difficult. Um, was it for, intimidating? Is like everyone oh, like super brainiac? It's definitely intimidating because you're with some of the the best and the brightest uh, there for sure, and um, you feel like hey, you know, I'm I was. You feel like every single person that's on that campus was the big man on campus in their high school because they had something special. They were you know 1600 on their SATs. They're uh, a famous violinist, they're a, an actor or an actress, they're a, they're about to be a doctor already at 18. You know, they, they've got something that sets them apart that now got we, them there. And what about like Mark Zuckerberg? Was he in your class? He wasn't in my class. Uh, I, I had, um, who did I have in my class? Natalie Portman was a year uh, yeah. uh, younger than me at school and um, Tatiana Ali was in my year. And um, actually when I was there, uh, Mira Sorvino had come back to finish, uh, I believe. I didn't see her, I didn't know her at all, but um, um, it was... Did, was it an enjoyable experience? I had a like great being time. On, being yeah. on that uh, campus? I had a Harvard. great time. I loved it. I met so many uh, good friends I'm still friends with today. And, and I just learned a lot from, because there are so many different people there and there's so many people that are the best at what they do there. Um, you get to learn so much. And I mean, not to take anything away from the classes because the classes are absolutely amazing, but you learn so much sitting at, at the lunch table um, <laughs> in the cafeteria with the people, with your uh, interacting with your, uh, with your other classmates that um, that to me was some of the most, uh, the most exciting and, and you know, memorable experiences aside from the class. Some of the classes, the big lectures, the, the moral reasoning is incredible. Some of the economics lectures were, were pretty spectacular. When you, when you open your textbook in economics and you see the, the author of the textbook is the same person that's teaching your class, it's, um, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be pretty neat if you went back and finished up. I, I think that, yeah, I think um, I may finish college. I don't know if I'll finish at Harvard because I, I don't plan on moving my family back to Boston for two <laughs> years, but my mom finished college when I was um, in about high school or middle school, and I remember it being really fun. We were all, we'd all be sitting around the dining room table doing our homework together, and I think I want to have that experience with my kids as well, so I want to show them that it's still, you can still learn it at, at any time, so uh, I'm planning on finishing maybe, right now I live in San Diego, maybe at San Diego State or University of San Diego, but just finishing at some point in, in something that I want to, something that I enjoy and that feeling of accomplishment and doing it together with my kids while they're going through doing their homework as well. That'd be like a TV show if you move the whole family to Harvard. <laughs> Live good. in the dorms with them. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, you played some of the most famous, incredible five setters, not just at the US Open, but it seemed like, man, it seemed like you had like a knack to go five. Um, yeah. I guess I want to know, like, how did, how did that impact those tournaments in your career? Did you run out of gas? Um, you played like those legendary matches yeah. at the Open. That Yeah, I had some tough ones and I, I definitely, I, I lost more five stars than I won, which is tough because I felt like I was in as good a shape as anyone out there and I, I, I prided myself on, on my hard work. Um, so I, I just felt like uh, the way I tried to look at it being optimistic was the fact that I had somewhat overachieved in some of those getting into a fifth set. And, you know, the days I was playing some of those guys, I played Leighton Hewitt in two five-setters uh, when he won the Open and made the semis of the Open. And, I mean, I played probably ab above myself to get into those five-setters with him because he was playing so at such a high level at those times. And um, one of them, my body let me down. I, I was... Um, I was cramping and had a bit of heat stroke. That was a, such a such hot day, and I was having. Um, I ended up getting tested for what what was going on there. That was when I was early on in my career, and I felt like I kind of uh, figured that out later. But I, I I didn't mind the five setters. I felt like my body. Um, 
uh, reacted pretty well, but I just I happened to, to not come through in, in some of the big five setters. But um, it was against people that deserve to win most times, against Andre Agassi in the fifth set. He played an unbelievable fifth set to beat me, and um, you know I can't really fault that. I lost a five-set tie, fifth-set tiebreaker to Ivo Karlovic where you know he just served me off the court, and that's what's going to happen against certain guys. And Krychek, the same thing, Richard Krychek at Wimbledon. That's a tough matchup. But I, I loved the, I love three out of five sets. I love playing it um, as fans. I hope they appreciate what goes into the training to be ready for that. Um, and I, I, um, I'm also understanding that it's a long commitment for a fan to sit through a five-setter. 2006, uh, easily your best year on tour. Mm-hmm. Um, if you kind of, you know, just kind of think back on that year, like you had so much clicking. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what was it about that year? I had just built on the, the momentum of 2005, the end of that year. I had come back uh, at the beginning of 2005 without a ton of confidence, not knowing if I would play again because I had been sick in 2004. And um, at the beginning of the year in 2005, I was definitely enjoying being back on tour, but the, the wins weren't coming. And as we had talked about in this podcast, there's match toughness. And I didn't have it at the beginning of 2005. As I started gaining progress, making progress, and uh, one of the best things for me is dropping down to challengers. I played two challengers in a row, won both of them. And that sort of vaulted my season in 2005, getting me back um, to where I needed to be. Um, And then um, 2006, I had just kind of built on that. Um, And I I had won won a lot of matches at the end of 2005. And um, then it just seemed like they were stringing together. Tournaments were coming and going, and I was ending up holding up trophies. And it was uh, was pretty amazing that I had that, uh, that ability. Man, you won five. I won five titles in 2006. It was definitely something I was proud of, and I um, won them in well, Bangkok and Indianapolis and um, Stockholm. early Stockholm and um, I think Sydney. And uh, you know, Indianapolis is probably the one that stands out to me because I was playing Andy Roddick, and that was really one of my best matches. Andy had beaten me m- many more times than I had beaten him on tour. He was a good friend, but also someone that had uh, somewhat dominated me on the court. And we got into a third set tiebreaker, and in the finals, a really hot day, and um, I had saved a ton of break points uh, in the third set, and he wasn't able to break me. And then in the tiebreaker, I won one point on his serve, and that was it. And I was able to do a great job of holding on to my serve. And um, he was someone that at that point was playing so well. He, he you know, always did. He was um, a perennial top 10 player in the world and made the finals of the Open that year. But the way I played that day, I felt like um, I deserved to win that title. And I, I was so proud of, um, you know, getting past someone who is a Hall of Famer and an unbelievable player. And, you know, he, he got me plenty more times, but that day I felt really good about the way I played and, um, you know, capitalizing on the, the one opportunity I had the whole day. It's such a sweet win. Yeah, it's great. And I mean, uh, like I said, it's not that I had any sort of grudge against Andy, but it's just, he's someone that I, I, I he beat me so many times and I'd come close other times and, and to get him in the finals of Indianapolis was, um, was something that I just felt like I was playing really well. And, you know, he was a, uh, a bit of a barometer for me for me to uh, test, like, how well I could play. And I felt like if I could beat him, I could beat anyone in the world because he's as good as anyone in the world. Andy Roddick as good as anyone in the world. Absolutely, yeah. So that was, uh, that was a fun one for me. Um, it seemed like, you know, we didn't have the James Blake retirement tour. <laughs> it seemed like you kind uh, of faded away as, as opposed to identifying yeah. the end. Um, was that a frustrating moment to... No, I, I knew I knew when my retirement tour was, and I was <laughs> I had it in my own mind. I knew in, in uh, 2013 that I was coming to the end. I remember 
Um, at the beginning of the year, I had told my wife, uh, and that was it. She was the only person I had told that I knew I was, um, I was going to be done that year. And um, I, my body was starting to give out. I wasn't able to compete the way I, I wanted to. I wasn't able to. Um, um, I wasn't able to recover. That was the biggest difference. Is if I had a tough match, the next day was going to be difficult. I was going to be on the table, getting treatment, um, trying to get healthy um, for an entire day. And it, same with a really long, tough practice. I couldn't recover really that quickly. And so I just felt like I didn't. I didn't feel like I could go deep in any event. If I played really well in the first two matches, by the third match, I felt like my body was starting to fail me. So. Um, and and what was your age? I was 33. Um, so yeah, I, I just felt like I couldn't, um, I couldn't compete um, at the top level, the level I wanted to. And I always thought if I couldn't get better, if I didn't feel like, even if I didn't feel like I could get better, then it was, it was going to be a tough time for me to enjoy playing tennis. So um, at that level, I mean, I can still play tennis and enjoy it now, but I realize I'm not getting better anymore. But at that point, I wanted to continue finding a way to get better. And because of the way I couldn't train, um, and recover, train and recover, train and recover. Um, that's what I needed to do to get better. I didn't feel like I could do that. I, I knew it was time to, to say goodbye, but I always wanted to end at the U.S. Open. So um, I wanted to make it through to the Open, and, and then at the Open, it was, um, it, it was, uh, that was a, a, a sad moment for me to be done, but it was also one where I, I never could have dreamed as a kid I would have had as much success as I had and, and to be able to say goodbye um, at the US Open where I'd seen so many of uh, so many people I looked up to play and and, um, and have that many fans uh, appreciative of my career I was uh, I felt extremely lucky man I mean like I said you know there's like certain guys you know Jaime Zaga mm -hmm. comes to mind but I mean you at the US Open was top shelf prime time, night after night, the J Block, you had that whole crew. Yeah. What are they doing, man? Are they coming down they here? Finally, they, they, they all <laughs> finally grew up and got real jobs and got married and had kids, and uh, those are some of my best friends from growing up. And they, There's nothing like that, man. They, yeah, they were, uh, they were having a blast with me, and they were the ones that were there for me when I was struggling in 2004 when I was sick, and those are, you know, everyone in that J Block people thought they were just um, random people that were crazy fans, but those are the people I could tell you every one of their life stories because they were the ones that were bringing me over dinner uh, when I didn't want to go outside. They were the ones that were making me laugh, that were sitting there playing cards with me when I couldn't go outside or, you know, just, you know, visiting me in the hospital. Those are the ones that were my true friends. And um, so I knew when I was struggling and they were there that if I was doing well, I wanted them there too. And they took advantage of that and had a ton of fun. Well, and just, we need to, we're gonna go back just for one second. In 2004, two things happened to you, right? Yeah. You broke vertebrae in your neck in yeah. a fluke accident, and then yeah. you caught a virus? Is yeah. that? Yeah, so I, uh, I broke my neck in Rome, and then I came back to the States, and my father passed away, and um, that was uh, really the toughest part for me by, by a long shot. And then after that, because of the stress of that, my, I got sick. I got a, a virus called zoster, which is shingles. And, um, that's right. It attacks my facial nerve. Yeah. So that's the stress. Yeah. So that's a tough club to be a part of. Yeah. When your dad dies. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't. Um, I tried to handle it as best I could, and um, physically, my body just shut me down with the, with the stress from uh, stress of everything emotionally, dealing with uh, my father's passing. And it was that crew that really helped you they kind of pull out. They were there every day, and I. I 
I know there's the old saying that laughter is the best medicine, and I'm definitely a subscriber to that because I don't think I would have gotten better as quickly as I did. I don't think I would have healed, maybe not ever, if it wasn't for them just keeping my spirits up throughout that six to eight months that I was home um, trying to recover and trying to become a tennis player again. Uh, for our listeners that either need a refresher or don't know what happened. Uh, I think it's probably five years ago now. Uh, yeah, 2015, so four Two, years ago, yeah. 2015, at the, basically the player hotel at the US Open, uh, James was taken down to the ground by a cop as a case of mistaken identity um, in a sting. And that's basically the right, that's... Yeah, the, uh, they thought I was operating some sort of a criminal activity out of the hotel, and um, well, it was a mistaken identity, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, they so yeah, they thought I was someone else that was. Um, uh, it had to be terrifying. Yeah, yeah it was. It was um, because I, it, it, in a split second, I was down on the ground and uh, being cuffed and had no idea what was going on. And at that point, you see what's going on in the news and um, the some of the the cases of. Um, Laquan McDonald or Eric Garner or um, Alton Sterling or any of the, or Marley Graham, any of the, the officer civilian encounters that have ended in death. And um, you don't want to be another one of those stats. You don't want to be another one of those names. No, and you, I, I, I read that you were showing the guy that you're literally your U.S. Open credential. Yeah. Saying, man, yeah, and they didn't I'm, a, I'm part of the final eight club. Yeah, if they didn't, uh, you know, I, I think about <laughs> it. freaking believable. Yeah, I think about it. If, they, if I didn't have a, a name and face that was able to be Googled, and that's what I think ended up uh, for them realizing they had made a mistake, um, I don't know if I would have, how much longer I would have been standing out on that corner, how much, or if I had been in the, the police car or even in jail without them listening to me. I feel remiss to not ask, um, is there any interesting update? So there's a recent update. The officer uh, was punished again three times more harshly than he was for attacking me for um, leaking the video, for, or for being aware of the leak of the video um, of us at the end of the encounter of us shaking hands. And so that's a departmental uh, procedural thing that he got uh, punished three times as harshly as than actually tackling me. Um, well, this guy, course, well, this guy made it. This guy made it a thing. Yeah, you had you had actually come out yeah. and said, "Listen, I'm not gonna." Yeah. So I didn't I didn't sue the city or anything. I, I started a fellowship um, in conjunction with the city to to stop things like this from happening and to have other people have uh, someone on their side to um, to fight for themselves uh, in this because most people don't have the resources that I had in terms of an agent, a publicist, uh, uh, you know, uh, everything I, I had at my disposal. Uh, most people have to fight this uh, quietly and they don't know how. So I, I've got a lawyer on staff um, that can help in these kind of situations. Um, that was my agreement with the city to not sue. Um, but then <laughs> the officer actually sued me for defamation, um, which was pretty quickly thrown out of court. Yeah, the officer and these guys uh, did the wrong thing from the uh, beginning yeah. to the end. It feels like. Yeah, and it's it, to me, it's it's something that's it's extremely frustrating. I'm extreme. I'm, I'm very passionate about it because um, I, I'm someone that my, my grandfather was a police officer. I was named after him, and you know he was someone that was uh, special in my life. And he, um, I, so I think of police officers in a very. Um, 
in a very exalted role. They're, I mean, the ones that do the job right are, are heroes. They, they put their lives on the line. They're civil servants. They're, um, they're doing an extremely difficult job and, um, and an extremely dangerous job. I, I wish more of the good police officers would be the ones um, policing these officers that don't deserve a badge, that, should, that are using it to be a bully, that are trying to operate above the law um, because they make it more difficult because if that, that encounter happened to me, now I may be more hesitant next time I encounter any police officer. And they may be doing their job the right way, right, but I'm more hesitant, and that makes their job more dangerous. So I wish more police officers would, would be the ones that are whistleblowers or letting people know that the small percentage of police officers that are operating on a totally um, morally corrupt level, the, uh, they should be taken out of the police brotherhood. They shouldn't have a badge. They should make it that um, they don't get to do this because this, this officer that did this to me, in my opinion, should not have a job in law enforcement. He should find some other profession because he clearly has an issue with minorities. He clearly has an issue um, with his temper. And so I think there's, uh, there's better jobs out there than one that has the ability to have lethal force. Moving into our fourth set, right. we call this uh, the 10-ball scramble. This okay. is not a deep dive. We're going to go quick. I'll All say right. it. You just say it back, whatever okay. comes into your mind. Okay. Your favorite tournament? U.S. Open. Favorite court? Arthur Ashe Stadium. Favorite city? Uh, well, on tour, I got to say New York. And what about in life? In life, um, Fairfield, Connecticut. Fair enough. Uh, favorite sport other than tennis? Football. Favorite team? New York Giants. Really? Yeah. All the way through. Yeah. I can't believe we lost Odell, but yeah. That's different. That was a different kind of thing. Um, Your best win? Roger Federer. When did you beat him? 2008 Olympics in Beijing. And I can say Roger Federer because there's only one time I beat him. So it's only, (laughs) there's only one. I don't have a a favorite out of all the times I beat him. It was only once. So that was my favorite. Score? 6-4-7-6. That's a good win, man. Yeah. That's a great one. No, that was a good one. Worst loss? Oof. Um, I mean, the toughest, probably the, the, the most heart-wrenching was probably the Agassi one in the, at the U.S. Open, but I can't say that's a bad loss to lose to a Hall of Fame uh, legend like Andre Agassi. That was an uh, excruciating match. <laughs> yeah. Um, Arthur Ashe? Hero. Player development? Uh, work in progress. ATP? Um... Gave me a job. <laughs> WTA. Um, on the same same level as uh, ATP. The ITF. Um, profitable. <laughs> uh, moving into our fifth and final set, you know we call this the king of the court. Okay. If you were the king of tennis and you could just wave a scepter and make a change, uh, what would it be? Um, well, I'm happy that one change that I've uh, lobbied for being the shot clock is starting to become a reality. Uh, I love that. It makes it fair for everyone. It doesn't bring um, the subjectivity of the, of the umpire in. It's just there's a clock and everyone can see it, so I love that. Uh, one more thing I would say is I would, I would shorten the calendar. I know how difficult that is um, because so many people make their livelihood in the events after the U.S. Open, but I would love to see a real off-season. 
um, being two or three months, not just uh, uh, you know four weeks and get right back to Australia. So I'd love to see an off season. And I think it's time, the experiment, I, I was a proponent of the coaching on the women's tour, uh, the encore coaching, uh, when it came out and uh, after seeing it, feeling like it's an experiment, which I, I love. I love trial and error in sports. Uh, you know, try something, if it doesn't work, you can scrap it. And I think, um, I don't think encore coaching needs to still happen for the women on tour. You want to kill it. I, I think it should go back to the way it was and um, yeah, keep them uh, the way it is in Grand Slams. Keep uh, everyone in the player box and uh, you're out there on your own. I'm going to ask one question. Sure. Um, you know, Colin Kaepernick took a knee to protest uh, police brutality, mm -hmm. and so much has happened since then. Um, which, where, where do you stand with regards to tennis? With regards to tennis, do you think that the players as a whole um, could conceivably be more socially uh, proactive? You know, I think it's interesting with tennis because you're not on a you're not a part of a team, so you um, theoretically could do and say uh, absolutely whatever you want. Um, you're not bound by uh, a team charter or a team uh, an owner. Uh, you have the rules of the ATP tour, but they don't they make no um, statements on your your social policy. So guys and, and women can say whatever they want, but they also realize that they're independent contractors that make a living on the court with their prize money, but also with their endorsements. Since tennis players' careers are so short and they none of the money is guaranteed, so I think they feel very bound by needing to make sure the corporations are happy uh, with them. So I think there's, um, there isn't a ton of social activism uh, in tennis, and I understand that. Uh, you know, when I was on tour, I, I, I didn't really step out on a limb that often either. Um, but also that was before Twitter. That was before uh, Instagram and Facebook and everything where you can get your, your message out there because I wasn't asked about a lot of social things in my press conference. It was asking about forehands and backhands and, uh, and the courts and that stuff. So um, I think nowadays you have this ability to, to reach all your fans at one time just through social media. So um, people have that opportunity. I think um, they're not um, they're not always using it maybe the way they want to or the way they have their messages crafted, but I think that's because they're so focused on their sport. I mean, tennis, I know when I was playing, I had to be so 100% committed to tennis that it was difficult for a lot of other things. And um, if you're, if, So if you want to speak out on things the way Colin Kaepernick has and the way some others, other athletes have, you have to have the time to educate yourself, in my opinion. And sometimes tennis players may not have that time. Uh, they have to be, they're traveling so much and uh, their body needs to recover so much because, of the, like I said, there's no off season really, that it may be difficult to educate themselves thoroughly enough to have a, an informed opinion. And I think it's safer and smarter to not um, speak out publicly if you don't have that education, if you don't have the ability to, to inform yourself. I'm not talking about formal education. You don't need to have a, a formal education to, to have an informed opinion, but you have to, you have to get some sort of an education uh, to be able to do that. And um, I think as players get older um, and maybe start going off tour and become more educated, then, then they'll start speaking out. But um, you know, tennis players start very young, so it's, it's difficult to have um, you know, extremely socially activist type mentalities when you're that young. Yeah, it'd just be neat to see an, uh, uh, somebody to 
be Muhammad Ali. Oh, it'd be, it'd be great. And we had, obviously, we had Arthur Ashe. Um, we had Althea Gibson that both made a, a huge difference in our sport and, and gave me the opportunity that I had to play. Um, and nowadays, I would love to see someone um, really take a stand and, um, and, and stand up for what they believe in and what they think is right. We've gotten a lot of things, uh, you know, a lot of positives in tennis when, in terms of equal prize money, uh, gender equality, Billie Jean King. Uh, we owe a ton to her. The Williams sisters have fought um, ardently for, um, for equal prize money, and they've got it. Miami Open here where we are is was one of uh, the first torrents to, to be combined and, and gave equal prize money from day one. So I think there have been a lot that have been leaders in the terms of um, the fight for equality. James Blake breaking down everything in tennis <laughs> today, man. Thank you uh, so much. Appreciate um, it. Thanks. You had such a good career. Thank um, you. A great American, world, former world number four. Normally we say that you are released, but we are at your tournament, so <laughs> we will uh, walk ourselves out of here. Thank you right. very much, man. Absolutely. Thank you. Huge thank you to James Blake. If you want to see James play or come out and play with him, the next Invesco Series event is April 4th in Tampa, Florida. And you can learn more about that at InvescoSeries.com. Big thanks to all the folks at the Miami Open. It really is phenomenal. If you're anywhere near Miami, make that trip. Big thank you to Zach Gallon and the folks at Inside Out Sports. Thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And tell your friends. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At URWithCS is our Twitter handle. Underreviewtennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.